Do good people go to heaven? One might think that the answer to that question is obvious. Well, yes, of course, good people go to heaven. Who else would go to heaven? That certainly represents the view of our popular culture. The question is going to be addressed in our Bible study today, and we will discover, perhaps, that the answer is not quite as obvious as we might think. By way of review, to just kind of catch us up to where we're at, Last time in our study of this letter of Philippians, we were challenged to live a life that can be imitated by imitating Jesus. Paul then gave us, as part of that whole thing, the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus as people who were imitating Jesus with their lives, selflessly giving themselves to serve Jesus and the church, and these are the kind of people that we can then follow the example of Paul will hit on this idea of imitating those who are imitating Jesus again near the end of chapter 3 of Philippians. In Philippians 3.17, he writes, Join together in following my example, referring to himself, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So Paul is telling us to imitate him as he imitates Jesus and to keep our eyes on those, watch them, pay attention to them, those who also live as imitators of Jesus. So in other words, we might say, find Jesus imitators and imitate them imitating Jesus. Well, today we're moving into chapter 3 of Philippians and we're going to notice a change in Paul's tone as he moves from encouraging the believers, which he's been doing in the first two chapters, to warning them against some people who were spreading erroneous teachings in the church. So let's begin in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. This verse transitions us from every thing that has been discussed in the first two chapters of the letter to this next major section of the letter. In the first sentence of this verse, Paul concludes all that he has said up to this point in the letter with the words, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We noted at the beginning of our study of Philippians that this letter of Philippians is often referred to as the letter of joy. The word joy in its various forms occurs some 16 times in this relatively short letter, and the majority of those occurrences are in the first two chapters of the letter. It makes sense that Paul would conclude these first two chapters with this summarizing statement, rejoice in the Lord. Paul began this letter thanking God for the Philippians and telling them that it brings him joy whenever he remembers them. We also saw in the first two chapters Paul's attitude of joy in the face of what could be dis considered very discouraging, disappointing, and even frightening circumstances. I mean, he's in Roman custody waiting for his trial before Caesar. It's going to be two years before he finally gets his day in court. While in custody, there are others going around the city of Rome, maligning Paul's character and seeking to increase their own power and influence in the church at his expense. 
added to all of that, Paul is facing the very real possibility of being executed if his trial doesn't go well. But instead of being discouraged, defeated, Paul is rejoicing because he's Jesus-focused and others-focused rather than self-focused. He can find joy in all circumstances. Getting ourself out of that center position of our life frees us up to find joy in all things. Self-focus robs us of joy rather than giving us joy. It's a feedback loop of disappointment. Here's the big idea. Joy is not a response to circumstances. It is a byproduct of being in relationship with the Lord and making Him the center of our life. Paul told the Philippian believers that they would make his joy complete by being imitators of Jesus. So he now wraps up these two chapters with the words, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Well, in the second sentence of verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul introduces the next big thing that he's going to be talking about, which is to remind us of what our salvation is founded upon. Apparently, word had gotten back to Paul, probably through Epaphroditus, that there were some people coming into the church at Philippi spreading false teachings. We might say that rather than spreading the good news of the gospel, these people are spreading fake news. This same false teaching, this fake news, had been introduced into many of the early churches. Almost all of Paul's letters to churches address this same false teaching at some point in them. The people spreading this particular flavor of false teaching came to be called Judaizers. They were basically teaching that a Christian needed to become a Jew in order to enter into full and complete salvation. A person needed to be circumcised. A person needed to observe Jewish Sabbaths and other holy days. A person needed to observe Jewish dietary laws. A person needed to practice the ceremonial parts of the Jewish law. What was being taught is that a person's salvation is obtained through the observance of religious rules and careful adherence to a code of ethics. Or to put it very simply, we could say salvation, they were saying salvation is something that is earned as a reward for exceptionally good behavior. Salvation is something that is earned as a reward for exceptionally good behavior. This same false teaching finds expression in our own day in the commonly held belief that people are saved by being a good person. The problem with the idea that being a good person is how we are saved and we go to heaven is that none of us, none of us, can be good enough, long enough to qualify. Even the best of us on our best days fall short. There's nothing wrong with adhering to a code of ethics and seeking to be a good person. In fact, that's a good thing. It's encouraged. Do it. Be a good person. There's nothing wrong with following religious observances. And again, certain religious observances can be helpful in a person's devotional life and 
aid them in being a good person. What is wrong is putting our trust in any of these things as a means for obtaining or maintaining our salvation and gaining entrance into heaven. So Paul begins talking about this all-important topic of how a person obtains salvation with the words, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. This is something that Paul has taught to them before and has no problem teaching it to them again. In fact, it is for their safety, their protection, for him to teach this thing again and again to make sure that they're solid and unshakable in their understanding of these things. Paul wrote over in Ephesians 4.14, he says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. These things need to be taught again and again in our own day too. It's easy for us as Christians, those of us who are following Jesus Christ with our life and have received salvation, to fall back into a score keeping type of life with God rather than a father-child relationship built on his grace and our trusting in his acceptance of us through Jesus Christ. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is a big change in the tone of the letter at this point. He gets very serious and pointed, warning us about the false teachers. In verse 2, He says, watch out for these dogs, for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Look at how Paul characterizes these people. He calls them dogs. In those days, dogs were not the internet-breaking explosions of cuteness that find their way onto our Facebook and Instagram pages. Dogs were wild, vicious mangy scavengers roaming the streets, stealing and fighting for survival. It was not a compliment to be called a dog. Jews called Gentiles dogs as one of the most demeaning terms that they could say in mixed company. Paul turns that around on these guys, these Judaizers who were Jews spreading these false teachings to the Gentile believers. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. These who considered themselves do-gooders are called evildoers because rather than truly doing good, they're leading people astray, away from the love and the grace of the Lord to trust in their own own selves to earn justification in the eyes of God. They're doing evil by leading people back onto that terrible soul-crushing treadmill of always trying to be good enough to be accepted by God. That is a brutal, ruthless taskmaster who is never satisfied because you cannot ever be good enough. You will work yourself to death And God wants to free you from that. The wonderful truth of the gospel is that through Jesus, you are accepted by God. He then works in you to do good. 
not as a way to earn God's acceptance, but as evidence that you are accepted by God. Paul calls these guys mutilators of the flesh. This is a reference to their teaching that a man must be circumcised according to Jewish religious custom in order to be saved. Now as a side note, some of you might be wondering, well, what about women? Why are they not required to be circumcised? Well, according to the Jewish Talmud, women are born circumcised, already possessing that which comes with the covenant sign of circumcision. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. In Galatians 6.15, he says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, referring to that new creation that God does in us through Jesus Christ. See, the act of being circumcised, that's not the issue. The issue is the theology attached to it. The issue is the reason why a person is circumcised. If a person is circumcised believing that it is essential for him to be accepted by God, then he has done nothing but mutilate his body. Circumcision has no value in making a person acceptable to God. Faith in Jesus makes a person acceptable to God. The power of God changes a person, not surgery performed on their body. Paul considers these men and their teaching to be dangerous and destructive. He tells the Philippians to watch out for these guys. Be on your guard against them. We've noted this before, but I'll say it again. It matters what we believe. It matters what we believe. Common sense alone ought to be enough to debunk that idea that it doesn't matter what a person believes as long as it's working for them. Not all beliefs are created equal. The person who believes he can fly and then jumps off a 10-story building to prove it is not going to end well, no matter how much he believes it, no matter how sincere he is. Not all beliefs are created equal. It matters what we believe. And this is a big point that Paul is making here. Is it matters, man, what we believe. Verse 3 says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So after calling out these false teachers in verse 2, he now states who are the people of God. He says, We are the circumcision, the followers of Christ. For the Jews in the Old Testament, circumcision was a visual sign on a man's body that he was a member of God's special covenant people. In Christ, we have a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, it says in Romans 2, 28 and 29, which truly makes us God's people. He says we're those who serve God by His Spirit. Our worship and service of God is by the Spirit of God rather than merely following religious routines. 
You might remember Jesus' conversation with the women at the well in John 4. He said a day was coming when the true worshipers of God would worship in spirit and truth. We're living in that day. This is the day when people will worship in spirit and truth. Paul says here we're, we are those who boast in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ makes our relationship with God possible. We boast in Him. We glory in Him. A sense of worship springs from us as we consider what He has accomplished for us. We look to what He's done, not what we have done. Finally, he says, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. That term, the flesh, it refers to what is done through human effort and achievement in earning God's approval. Our trust, our confidence, our reliance, our security is in Jesus Christ to make us acceptable to God rather than anything that we have done or are doing or will do. So verse 4. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul, he now uses himself as an example of someone who was exceedingly qualified, fully meeting all of the criteria that these false teachers were putting forth as being what's needed for salvation. But Paul, he doesn't put any value in those qualifications that he has, knowing that they are inadequate to gain entrance into the pearly gates of heaven. Paul was an A-lister, if anyone was. He had all of the boxes checked in his life. If people get into heaven based on their accomplishments and do-gooding, then Paul was definitely getting in. He had better marks than all of these false teachers did. He was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the Jewish law specified should be done. He was a Jew by birth. He had the right pedigree. He was a direct descendant of a noteworthy Jewish tribe. He was of pure Jewish stock. He had been educated in the best Jewish schools. He was a card-carrying member of a Jewish sect known for their religious zeal and exactitude. He was actively persecuting the church as an expression of his religious commitment. His religious observance was flawless. There was a time in Paul's life when he was working as hard as he possibly could to earn God's acceptance, to earn God's love, to earn salvation, to earn entrance into heaven. He gave his life to that pursuit. If a person gets into heaven by being a good person, then Paul was going to receive a warm welcome if anyone would. But, look at verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, all that Paul had accomplished, all the good deeds that he had done, all the self-denial that he had put himself through, all of the religious observances that he had meticulously followed, all of the religious capital that he had accumulated, he realized had failed to really get him what he needed and wanted. See, he was as empty as he had ever been. He had made no real gains in quieting the agony in his soul through all of that stuff. He struggled to reach the top of that religious devotion mountain to prove his worth to God. But when he got there, there was nothing. It was just the top of a mountain. It wasn't heaven. It wasn't God. God wasn't there waiting for him. It wasn't even meaningful ultimately. He was still an infinite distance away from reaching God. But when he encountered Jesus Christ, it changed everything for him. His whole frame of reference was upended. What he had worked so hard to, to earn was freely given to him in Jesus Christ. Rather than struggling up that brutal mountain of religious commitments to reach God, God reached down to him. He'd sought to be Righteous through his own efforts. And now, through faith in Jesus Christ, he was declared righteous by God. The righteousness that he had been working so hard to establish by following the religious playbook was never going to be good enough to get him anywhere with God. It was a loss. It was a bust. It was worthless. It was rubbish. It was Garbage, he says. Everything he needed, everything he wanted, he found in Jesus Christ. There was no reason to hang on to the stuff that he had before. Those things didn't work. Those things could never work. Here's an illustration to try to get this across, perhaps. Imagine that you are standing at the front door of the most amazing mansion you have ever seen. And there's a sign on the door that says, the person who enters through this door can have everything inside. So you go up, and you try the doorknob. You, you try to open the door, and you discover that it's locked. Well, you're the industrious type, though, so you... Find a bobby pin and you start working the lock, trying to open the door. You work at it for days, for weeks, for months, for years. Trying to get in. Trying to get past the lock on that front door. You try a paper clip. You try your pocket knife. You try a screwdriver. You try anything you can find that will fit inside the keyhole. You invest in 
a lockpicking kit. You take lockpicking seminars and classes. You read books about lockpicking. You pick dozens of locks on other doors of lesser homes. But the grand mansion remains closed to you despite all of your very best efforts. And then one day, this guy walks up to the front steps of the door and he pulls a key from his pocket and he unlocks the door and he goes right through into the mansion. You're dumbfounded. And that same guy who's just unlocked the door, he turns around while standing at the threshold and he looks at you and he asks, would you like to come in? This is my father's house. And because he loves me and I do everything my father tells me, he's given me the right to invite into our house anyone who accepts my invitation. In order to come in, though, you have to throw away all of your lockpicking gadgets and gizmos. They will never unlock this door. I'm the son, and I have the key to the door. Follow me and trust that I will open the door for you, and you can come in. In closing this morning, if Paul was not qualified to get into heaven with all that he had going for him, all of the stuff that he had done, why would any of us think that we're qualified to get into heaven with whatever we're bringing to the table? I mean, I don't want to offend you, but man, none of us are as committed as the Apostle Paul was. None of us are. If our own merits are what makes us acceptable to God, then we're in deep trouble. We're not getting in. But the very good news is this. The merits of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is what makes us acceptable to God, Jesus. As it says in Philippians 3.9, He's the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He's the son. He's got the keys to the mansion. And he's saying, come in. He's inviting you to come into his father's house today. Have you accepted that invitation? Believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice for your sins to remove your guilt before God. Believe that Jesus came back from death on the third day and now lives forever to intercede for you. Ask Jesus to come into your life and change you and create His new life in you. And then follow Him. I mean, that... Follow Him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. If you'd like to come into the Father's house through the Son today, just... Repeat this very simple prayer with me. Lord, thank you for dying for me. Forgive me for my sin 
Come into my life. Change me. Give me salvation, Lord. Give me entrance into the Father's house. I'm going to follow you with my life. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this very important reminder for us today from the Apostle Paul that our salvation is based on what Jesus has done, not on what we have done or are doing. It is that it's his merit, not mine, that saves me. Lord, I pray that you would fill your people with joy as they reflect on this, they remind themselves of this this week again and again, that Jesus is our righteousness and our salvation. And he has the keys and he's invited us into his Father's house. What an awesome thing. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.